Lord, all our lives, you have been faithful. You have been good because you are good. Faithful because you are faithful. Lord, all the things that we read of you, that we hear of you, that we experience of you in our hearts, the perfection of you is a glorious and marvelous thing to behold. And we, we behold it now dimly, as Paul says. But one day, your goodness, your glory will be entirely revealed to us. Lord, we thank you for that faithfulness. We live in it. We depend on it. Lord, open our hearts and our minds today to see the things that your word has for us. That we might go from this place encouraged, that we might go from this place informed what it means to live a holy life in a very difficult place. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, when asked what weapons would be used to fight World War III, Einstein said, I don't know. But World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. In 1947, on the heel of two nuclear detonations in Japan during World War II, the brilliant physicist Albert Einstein founded what we call the Doomsday Clock. He and a number of other University of Chicago scientists who helped develop the first nuclear weapons used this apocalyptic imagery of midnight, and we're approaching midnight. And then they also used the contemporary nuclear language of countdown to zero to convey threats to humanity. If you were not aware of it, three hours ago or so, Putin elevated his nuclear threat level. I'm sure the clock ticked a couple of seconds sooner. That clock is set every year by the same organization that was founded by Einstein in consultation with the members and the board of sponsors, which contain or includes 11 Nobel laureates. The clock is universally recognized as an indicator of the world's vulnerability to threat. So where are we at today on the doomsday clock? Well, less than a month ago, January of this year, the clock was set to 100 seconds before midnight. That is the closest the clock has ever been in its 75-year history. And I wonder like in football, for those of you who may be aware of some of the rules in that game, 
if we might be living during the time that God has called the two-minute warning. Even the world understands the threat that is there. With Eastern Europe at war, China's ravenous eye on Taiwan, North Korea wanting to unite the peninsula under their rule, of course, Iran wanting to dominate the Middle East, there exists very tangibly the possible destabilization of the world. And there is a sense all over the world that we could be living in the countdown to God's wrap-up in human history. Now, there are some ways to look at history, and there are reasons, biblically speaking, why we don't need to worry too much about it. But the three major ways that we look at history are, first, that it's a cyclical process that's going nowhere. The second way is that it's a linear process going nowhere. But then there is a biblical way to look at history, given that it is his story, that there is a linear process going somewhere. Now, outside of God and outside of Christ and outside of our understanding of the Bible, circular or linear, it doesn't matter. The world's going nowhere. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's, there's nothing. And it's an amazing thing to read Darwin. If you've never read him, you, I, you should. Not to gain his philosophy, but to appreciate his appreciation for nature. He found it beautiful and fascinating and wonderful. But instead of giving the glory to God, he chose to believe and teach in the blind purposelessness of natural selection. And I, I, I tell you, and people know this, and I don't know why they continue to adopt this, but there is no basis for optimism, for society, for the world, for humankind in Darwinism. None. Zero. It does not exist. In fact, in naturalism, we have no basis at all to say that Putin is wrong, that the Ukrainians are victims, or that good will prevail. In Darwinism, those categories, they don't even exist. And yet, that's the world we live in today. In modern li literature, evolution is a fact. It is not a theory. And those who do not fully accept it are considered mentally, emotionally, and spiritually deficit. Those of us who believe in God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, are seen as intellectually, emotionally, mentally crippled and in need of education, in need of medication. And, and, and this is not an exaggeration. This is the world that we live in. The evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins wrote this, it is almost as if the human brain were specifically designed. If you know who Richard Dawkins is, it's just, this is a, an incredible statement. 
to misunderstand Darwinism and to find it hard to believe. Specifically designed? Did you, did you lose something for just a moment? Why is it hard to believe? Well, I'll tell you why it's hard to believe. It's not difficult to understand. It's as our founders said, there are truths that are self-evident. We don't need to ponder them. I mean, what did they say? They said that all men, and let me tell you something about that. They meant humanity. Regardless of what you hear from the woke crowd, from politicians today, they didn't mean only rich, white, land-owning men. They meant people, human beings. Don't, don't buy into that. They're trying to tear... They're trying to tear godliness out of what was there because what they were talking about was something that was amazing. They were talking about that all of us are created equal. In fact, endowed by their creator. Certain unalienable rights that among these, but not exclusive to them, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And... That's the reason that people of faith reject this. They reject this notion of Darwinism, of evolution. It's rejected because there are truths that we know to be with us anywhere, everywhere, in all times and in all places. So that's the place we are at in history. And we are not we are not immune. We are in fact in a measure of danger. So what does the Bible have to say about history or purpose or meaning or future? Does it have anything to say about these things? As it so happens, it says a great deal. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians 5 through 11, where it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. That We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith of love and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage and build one another up, 
just as you are doing. So first, just to orient us to the text here, when, when Paul says, now concerning, what he's doing is he's, he's answering another question. Last week we talked about the question of, well, we became Christians since you left. Some of us who became Christians, particularly loved ones, have died. What happens to them? And so he answered that question. Now they have another question. It's not hard to understand. It's actually quite, it follows. Well, what happens to those who do not trust Christ? I mean, when a person comes to Christ, they, are, they have a natural desire for those people that they love and care for to join in the, with them in, in Christ. And so Paul's answer is, uh, is sobering, one which they already had heard. He tells us that. But it's still informative to us that he tells us that the day of the Lord is part and parcel of the gospel, given that verse 9 tells us that we are not destined for wrath. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your salvation experience was. But mine was coming to a place uh, as an atheist who came to a place of faith, not in Christ, but in God. I came to believe that God exists. And as soon as I did that, it was a remarkable thing because uh, I immediately knew that whatever side God was on, I was not on that side. And I was in trouble and I would face uh, judgment. And of course, the, the question that began to just eat at me was, who could rescue me from this fate? And it was Jesus Christ, of course, the righteous. He could and he did. And so last week we talked about the rapture, the catching away of the church. But here in the fifth chapter, Paul is going to tell us something else about the future. Something that is related, but that is not the same. Now, clearly, in the short time that Paul was there, he had taken uh, a good bit of time to talk about this, which actually should encourage us in some ways to examine our priorities about what we talk about, particularly as it relates, as it relates to the gospel, because what he says is that you don't have any need for me to talk to you about this. Or he told you. You've got it. Now, I don't know about you, but I, for one, would have been, I would have been very happy for him to say, okay, let me repeat everything just so that you get it clearly. But thankfully, he says enough so that we can at least have some notion of what he's talking about as it relates to the day of the Lord. Now, the word day in the Bible is used in a number of, of different ways. Sometimes it talks about the daytime. So it's talking about when it's light outside. It's talking about from uh, dawn to uh, dusk. Sometimes it refers to a 24-hour period, which you go, okay, uh, when does that begin, dawn? No, uh, in the Jewish uh, uh, thought, particularly the Sabbath, right, it began at sunset, and then it ended at sunset 24 hours uh, later. 
And sometimes it's used in the, the Bible just to simply refer to a period of time, just as the way we use it in English. So uh, we might uh, say, you know, uh, the, the day or the days of our youth. Well, it doesn't matter how you say it. It's not talking about a day or a number of days. It's talking about a season. It's talking about a time in our lives when we were young. Some of you may be in that season. Now, we're all in some season or another. But the first thing I want you to understand about the day of the Lord is that it's not simply a single day. In fact, in, in Jewish thought, it was referred to multiple times throughout history. The day. Uh, when uh, you had the song breaking out when the uh, the Israelites had gone across from um, the Red Sea over to the other side, that was known as the day. And so they used this to refer to big events or big uh, big times. The Day of the Lord is what we're talking about here. It's not a single day. It's an extended period of time that is yet future. And it's a time when God is going to bring about, we're told in Revelation, some incredibly powerful, uh, dramatic events uh, in the course of mankind's history in order to bring and conform all things to himself. And so the fullness of that has to do with the catching away of the church. It has to do with the great tribulation. It has to do with Christ's second coming uh, to the earth in, in judgment. And so when Paul is talking about the day of the Lord here in this text, he's talking primarily about what's going to happen to unbelievers. He does talk about believers, but primarily unbelievers. Believers. How do we know that? Well, if you look at the text, it's because of the pronouns. When Paul talks about the church, he always says, we, our us. When he talks about those outside the church, he talks about they. He talks about them. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers. And if you go through the text, and you see what he's saying, you'll be able to keep in mind who is who. The letter is obviously written to the church, so he's obviously talking to the church, but in the talking to the church, he's not always talking about the church. In this case, he's talking a great deal about unbelievers. And he begins, uh, like uh, the text said, now concerning the times and seasons. We need to pause here for... Uh, Just a moment, we've looked at these words before, not in this particular context, but it is important for us to understand the two words. One is chronos, the other is kairos. Chronos is where we get our word for uh, chronology, or uh, chronographic, or something like that. It has to do with tick-tock, tick-tock. It has to do with the passage of time. And what we have here is whether it's a short time or a long time, a past time, a future time, doesn't matter. It's just simply talking about the uh, passage of time. Last week when we talked about the catching away, we understand that that 
is imminent. That is, is there is nothing that necessarily has to happen. Many things will happen, but on the biblical timetable, not so. It will happen at any time. But the other word, so that's the word for you don't have you don't need to know anything about the times. The other word is seasons. And the word here, seasons, does not mean the four seasons. We're not talking about spring, summer, winter. The word is kairos. And that word is a fascinating word because it means at the right time. It's talking about a moment in time. So you may have a... Uh, I did a wedding on uh, Friday. And that wedding, the, you know... Part, if you go from in the terms of the formal parts of it, maybe it was three hours all the way through the end of the reception kind of a thing. But in that three hours, there were kairos moments. There were moments that that couple will never forget. There are moments that the parents of that couple will never forget. The difference between tick-tock, tick-tock and these moments that come to us. That's what this is about. I mean, right now we're just emerging from a season of COVID. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I love uh, Ron's uh, word, a mess. <laughs> and God gives to people insights into understanding these things. I love this passage. You remember the story where uh, David has been anointed king, and yet he's fleeing from Saul. And this was an extended period of time. This was no short period of time. There was a lot of tick-tocks of the clock. But there's a passage in First Chronicle 12, which you've heard before, but it tells us something very interesting that's different from what we hear anywhere else. And it's about the men of Issachar, the descendants of Issachar, that there were men who had understanding of the times. They understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that was they ought to follow David. That's Kairos. They understood the times. They understood the season. They knew, and they knew that they knew, and they knew that it was David's time. David was to be king. In Matthew 16, we see something similar where Jesus tells the people, he says, you can look at the sky and you can tell whether or not tomorrow is going to be stormy or whether it's going to be calm. And I have sent these prophets to you for all these millennia, and you can't read, you, you missed me. That's what he's basically saying, is you missed the coming of the Messiah. You can read all these signs, but you can't read the signs that the Father in heaven has given to you. So those are the two things. The moments and the flow of time. Verse 2 tells us that they're fully aware of the, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that's a first characteristic that he tells us about this day. There are other texts which uh, over time 
we, we talk about this uh, more. But here, the first characteristic is that he says, I'm coming as a thief in the night. Now, when I was a new believer, I was quite, quite literal about everything. I, I thought that meant he would come at night. Um, but then I realized it's a global kind of event, right? So it's going to be day somewhere. Uh, so don't think that it's going to thief in the night means anything about daytime or nighttime. So what does it mean? It means that his coming will be unexpected. So notice the pronouns. While people are saying there's peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon us. Wait a minute. I saw a couple heads pop up. No. Sudden destruction will come upon them. Not us. It's not what it says. He's not referring to the church to whom he is writing to. In other words... He's not writing about believers here. He's writing to believers about unbelievers. So he says that the day of the Lord will come upon them. And this is a part of the day of the Lord, right? The part that talks about judgment. Now, please notice in in verse 4, Paul changes the pronouns. He says, but you... Now he moves away from what's going to happen to unbelievers. And then he says something about believers because this would be concerning. This would be concerning. I, I don't know. Am, am I as blind as they are as it relates to the Lord's coming as a thief in the night? And he says, no. Why is that? He says, you're not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not going to, or maybe I can translate this a little bit, or maybe interpret it a little bit is is a better way. Uh, You should not be surprised when the Lord comes. You you shouldn't, it it, it would be like, you know, you've been told someone is coming to your home. You just don't know when they're going to arrive. But when they come up to the door, you, you, you wouldn't say, well, who, who are you? I, I didn't expect you in any way. No, we're told he's coming. We're told to be prepared. There's a lot about this in Matthew and some other places. We're to be ready. And how is this so? Well, it's because we're children of the light Verse 5, you are all children of the light, children of the day. I don't know how you think about yourself, but I think that it's an important exercise for you not to take all of your thoughts about yourself from inside your own mind. I think it is a, an important exercise to take thoughts about yourself from the word of God. And the word of God says that you, you who have trusted Christ, are children of the light. I love this children. There's this naming process here in the ancient Near East, certainly then and today. Whenever you say that something or or someone is the son or the daughter, the child of someone... It always means that you bear a certain characteristic of that one. 
like Barnabas. Barnabas was not his birth name. I don't know what his name was. Barnabas was a name given to him. Why? Because he, Barnabas, he was the son of encouragement. They called him that because he was one who encouraged. Uh, It's important to remember that we're children of the light, so we, we bear this light. In John 18, or John 8, Jesus spoke to them and he said, I am the light. So we bear this imaging of the Father of Jesus Christ. And then there's a promise in that same text in John 8. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You and I, we've been given light. And we've been given the light of life. Verse 6 tells us that till then let us not sleep as others do. Paul cleverly uses his metaphor of sleep, which we talked about last week, where he's talking about death, where he's talking now about ignorance, and he's talking about this lack of understanding of the times and seasons that we live in to where we cannot see that leads to destruction. In other words, it's sleep that leads to sleep. Therefore, let us, he says, be alert. Verse 8, he says, Since we belong to the day, that time of light, let us be sober again. To be clear-minded is what he's saying, having on these, and then he gives some of this uh, armor, which is a, the image here in the context is Paul is talking about a sentry, a guard, not sentry as in a hundred years, but sentry as one who is at his post standing guard. In the military, depending on the context, to include the U.S. military, theoretically, sleeping on duty can lead to execution. It certainly leads to shame, And it can certainly lead to reduction in rank and loss of pay and all kinds of things because sentries are in place for a reason. It's to protect. It's someone who has to be at the ready. I can assure you, uh, after 96 or so uh, hours of constant uh, war, the soldiers in Ukraine are exhausted they are exhausted but if one were to fall asleep i'll guarantee you he would be no matter how tired he was he would be in a great deal of trouble paul is telling us to keep an eye out and it's not because we will be in trouble it's not because he's using this as an illustration of how we're to be Looking, we're to be looking as a matter of readiness for our Lord. Verse 19 says, God has not destined us for wrath. I mean, in wrath, as we discussed last week, is what the great tribulation is all about. And we're not destined for that. We, the body of Christ, are not destined for wrath. Why? I mean, I'm going to sound like a... A broken record, and I hope so, and and I really hope so, because God has given me a ministry of proclaiming to anyone that I meet that Jesus Christ bore 
the wrath of God for you. He carried it, he consumed it, he was enveloped by it, but it was all, all, 100% for you. The Bible says that Jesus is our propitiation. That's a word that you've probably never used in a sentence before, but that's okay, I haven't either, unless I'm studying theology. But what does it mean? It means that, it, it, the word literally means to turn aside wrath. That's what it means. It, it means to uh, allow there to be something that appeases the, the wrath. And Jesus Christ has done that for us. For those of us who are in Christ, whose faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the wrath of God has been turned aside. And we can say with the apostle, we are not destined for that. I mean, how could we be? How could we be? Because what that would mean is that what Jesus did wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. When he said it was finished, it meant he misspoke. And we know that's not true. Ever since I read this book, A Forgiving God in an Unforgiving World, by Ron Davis, uh, I've been enamored with this story because uh, it's, a, it's a true story of a priest who worked in the Philippines. And he, he was a man who loved God. But he did something while he was in seminary. I have no idea what it was. The story doesn't, doesn't say. But he had repented. He had asked God for forgiveness. He had confessed. He had done all those things. But there was still no, no peace, no sense of God's forgiveness. Well, in his parish was a woman. And this uh, woman uh, said that she... Uh, well, she obviously loved God, but that she had uh, the ability to have uh, dreams in which she would speak to Christ and visions and so forth. And, of course, the priest, very skeptical of this, uh, he said, well, the next time you speak with Christ, I want you to ask him what sin your priest committed while he was in seminary. And so she agreed. And uh, a few days later, the priest came to her and said, Well, did Christ appear to you in your dream? And she said, Yes, he did. And he said, And did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? And she said, Yes. And he said, What did he say? He said, I don't remember. What God forgives he forgets and don't don't wring the truth out of this in this way of course god doesn't forget what does this mean what does it mean he doesn't remember what it means is biblically speaking when god says he doesn't remember something what that means is that he will do nothing regarding that thing. 
And if you understand how far the east is from the west, I don't. (laughs) But that's how far your sin has been removed from you. We don't need to labor and walk under our sin because the work of Christ is sufficient. Paul can say that God has not destined us for wrath, but rather we have been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Then he ends this section by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We stand on a firm foundation. A firm foundation. The foundation of Christ that we stand on holds you in such a way that you cannot ultimately ever fall. I know some don't believe that. That's what the Word of God says. Father, all all my life, all our lives, You have been faithful. I, I have not. I can dare say that many of us, all of us, can say that we do not have the characteristics of faithfulness and goodness like you. We do not. And yet, we have been made righteous through the sacrifice of Christ. We have been made holy. We are brought into your presence because of your Son. And it's through that that we give you glory. It's through that that we need not worry over much about where the world is at or where the world is going because it's all in your hands as we are. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.